Um, I'm going to speak. I'm going to get right into it because we've got um, uh, we've got some time. That's good. We're going to talk about. We've been in a series um, called uh, what's just been titled God. We've been exploring the, the the person of God, the the being of God, who is God. And I'm closing that series out today. Many um, theologians and philosophers um, have poised this question, which they say is one of the most important questions that you could ask yourself, which is what do you think about when you think about God? And we've been doing that. Um, we've, we've said that when you we walk into a random room of people and you start asking that question of people and you get all sorts of responses from people about what comes to mind as soon as you ask that question. You know, there'll be images of, of God. Perhaps it's a, a, an all-powerful Zeus-type character on a throne that has power. Um, or maybe it's um, a force, more like, the, like Star Wars, like the life force. Um, I don't know what comes to your mind when I ask that question, what do you think about when you think about God? We've been exploring this, um, and of course two weeks ago we looked at um, the person of Jesus. Last week Stephanie led us to look at the Spirit, God as Spirit. This week we're going to focus on the, th- the third member of the Trinity. Um, it's actually Trinity Sunday today, which is a Sunday in the church calendar where Christians all over this city, in this island, across the UK, around the world, are actually celebrating this this Christian belief, this Christian doctrine, I suppose, this reality of the God of the, the universe, the cosmos, Elohim, has revealed himself in the, in the scriptures as, as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's a real mystery to that. Um, it's also, uh, as part of our cultural calendar, as you know, it's, it's Father's Day, so if you forgot about that, you now know. You've been told twice, now you can get out and get a card before um, lunchtime, just after the service. Um, uh, it's a perfect Sunday, though, to ask this question. What do you think about when you think about God? Um, open, your, open your Bibles. You've all got Bibles on your tables. You've hopefully got app on your phone. Um, open it to Luke 15, and we're going to dig into Luke 15. Um, in this passage, just as you're looking that up, Jesus is actually telling a parable. We're going to use that today. As, and as this, this is a parable. It's actually one of the clearest images or depictions of, of God um, that we have. He actually tells three parables here. Um, there's a parable of the lost sheep. There's the lost coin. And then there's this parable called the, the parable of the prodigal son. Hopefully you've, you've heard of that. Hands, you've, obviously everyone heard of that a parable. Hands up if you've heard of that parable. Everyone heard of that parable? Um, I'm going to read it. Let's go. Luke 15, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, forgive, father give, me the, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a, a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And he was longing to be fed by the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose 
and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing and he called one of the servants and asked them what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. The father came out to him and entreated him. But he answered the father, look, these many years have I served you and I never disobeyed your command and yet you never give me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. And when the son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he's found. It's a great parable, and it's actually often called, as we know, we've already said, the parable of the prodigal son, which I don't think is actually quite right, in a sense. I've also heard it called the parable of the two sons, which is better, because there's two sons in the story, and two sons have something to teach us in this passage. But actually, and honestly, I feel like this would better be titled the the heart of the father, because I think the father figure in this parable is so central and key, and it's the father figure we're gonna look at this morning, because it provides us, as I say, with this defining image of God, not just as a father, but as a father toward us, um, his love toward us. So let's just, you have to remember, Jesus is actually teaching this parable to a particular audience earlier in the passage in verse one in chapter 15 of Luke. uh, It says this, now the tax collectors, collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus, and so the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. This man receives sinners and eats with him. So basically Jesus is getting a hard time here because he's hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and the teachers of the law are complaining, grumbling because he shouldn't be doing that. He calls himself a rabbi. But then I sort of think, well, maybe I shouldn't, maybe, maybe I shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't judge these Pharisees, these teachers of the law so quickly because, I mean, these are not just goofy fundamentalists. I mean, they sort of, they are very fundamentalists in the truest sense, but these are respected and educated people, teachers of the Torah, of the law of Moses. They are within a tradition, and this Jesus is doing some scandalous stuff in their mind. They have a particular image, perhaps, of of God, and, and the way Jesus is presenting God and teaching about God and is not quite fitting with that as he hangs out with sinners. So I sort of think, well, maybe I shouldn't judge those guys too much. Um, Because surely when we come to the question of what we think about when we think about God, we all carry certain ideas and notions about God and it clouds our ability to see. So anyway, Jesus goes on to tell the the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, but in doing so, as I say, he's revealing much more and he's essentially answering this question for us. Jesus is answering the question, who is this God? What do you think about? So we have two sons. Let's go through the story here. This one, the younger son, 
asks for his share of inheritance, which in that context in the Middle East, the Middle Eastern culture would have effectively been communicating to the Father, you are dead to me. You are dead to me. That's essentially how he's living. I want my inheritance now. Just note the response of the Father right here. It just says he just divides up the inheritance between the two sons. Just, he, he just does that. He gives them both their inheritance early, both of them. So the young son, he leaves, goes to the far off country and he blows all his money, he squanders it as the scriptures say there on his inheritance and then there's this famine in the land and the younger son has blown all his money and he is in dire need and he goes to look after and feed some pigs, he's a pig farmer and he's hungry and he's actually considering eating the food that the pigs are eating and he's essentially at the end of himself. Have you ever been at the end of yourself? At the end of yourself, how many of us have been there when you've just run out of options? You've hit a brick wall. And and we start to often turn, not all of us, some of us turn to God in those moments when we're literally out of options. It's interesting in verse 17, it says when he came to himself, which I thought was an interesting phrase because there's a sense that He is at the end of himself here, but he's having this realization. And the realization is this, that the hired servants back at his father's household are actually not hungry as he is hungry. They have much more than he has. They're provided for. So he decides he maybe isn't completely at the end because he has one option is to return to the five, will arise and go back to the father. He's starving and he's hungry and he decides to to return to the Father. But he decides, and this is a really important part of the story, and I think it's really for us this morning, because this is a real simple message for us, but I truly believe it is for us this morning, that he decides not to return as a son, but as one of the hired servants. He's gonna go back, because he's brought so much shame upon the family and the Father, he's gonna go back, he's gonna beg, can I have a place on your hired staff in the household? Um, going to beg the father for that. Can you imagine the amount of rejection that the father has experienced? And can you imagine the son here who's who's squandered all this wealth and he's at the end of himself? Can you imagine the weight of the shame of that, if that was your story? Can you you imagine that? Brené Brown, she says that shame, um, she's a researcher into this, shame is the most powerful master emotion It's the fear that we're not good enough. I can only imagine that this younger son who's got himself into this position is just, I've blown it. I'm done. I'm not enough. I just wonder if we pause right there in the story, is that where you find yourself today? Are you you far from the Father? Are you far from God? Is this your story today? Is this your story? Just like your story, This story's not over, let's keep reading. Because the younger son does return. It says he arose and went back to the father. What's the reception gonna be back at the father, the father's household and in the village? Well, there's a New Testament scholar, Kenneth Bailey, who really helps us out here. And I think it's really, really interesting. Because as we've already said, things haven't worked out for the son. But what is about to happen is uh, radically unorthodox from every way that you look at it. 
particularly from the position of the younger son. Because he has disgraced himself. He's blown the inheritance. And he's returning. He's actually not even blown it. He's sold it on in a far off land. And so he returns to the village. And what he's expecting is probably that the father is going to be aloof. Back in the house. And he's going to have to make his way through the village back home. And he's going to be subdued as he makes that journey back home through the village. And the people in the crowd in the street are going to, dis- they're going to discern or discover or re- realize or recognize this is the younger son who left a few years ago and he's back. And they're going to realize he's, he's squandered all that he had. And what's going to happen then is, as a custom, is that they're going to realize he's squandered it in a far off land among the Gentiles. And so the Kazaza ceremony will begin. This is a, a ceremony that would have taken place in that context. The Kazaza ceremony, which is a ceremony of shame. The son would have been obliged to sit outside of the gate of the home before ever being allowed in or being allowed even to see the father. And finally, he would have been summoned. And the boy, while already rejected by the village, then the father would come out, obviously, and be angry. And the boy would have to apologize in front of everyone for the way that he has disgraced the family and plead for the job back for training. Not even in that village, actually, but in the next village. But this is not what happens. The Kazaza if I'm pronouncing that right, <laughs> ceremony, um, does not happen. No one in the village, though, thinks that they're a separate person in these times that we're looking back into this context. Everyone feels a part of the culture, part of the village. They're a unit, so they respond. The individual's solidarity with that community would be unshakable. So the father is gonna be with the village like this, except in this story that Jesus tells, the father isn't, and the father acts in this incredible countercultural manner, because we read this amazing verse which says this. But while he, the son, was a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father was waiting for the son. And he breaks all the rules of that oriental patriarchy as he runs down the road to reconcile. That word actually that says he runs, it actually it actually means like like it's the word the word that would be used when Paul's describing like the running in the sta- the foot races that would go on in the stadiums. So, I mean, it looks, using that word really, really specifically, looks a real educated author here. So we could really translate this, that the father saw him and had compassion and raced, raced to him. This is like flat out. This is not a slow shuffle. This is not a fast walk. And he races. And in that context, again, in the Middle Eastern um, context, a man of age wouldn't do this, particularly a man of age and position, because they would walk slowly, and they would walk dignified in a dignified fashion, it would be actually pretty fair to assume that this man may not have ran for maybe 30, 40 years. You just don't do it. In fact, no one in the village over 25 ever really ran, according to Kenneth Bailey. No villager really ran. And so 
The father sees him from afar. He has compassion and he races, but the race he has to lift up the hem of his garment and he has to expose his legs, which is really humiliating again in that culture. Like a teenager would do that. And so all of the villagers who were focusing their attention on the younger son would now be focusing all their attention on the father, <laughs> the respected father, the, sh- the elder of the village who's now racing through the village, shaming himself publicly because the father's moved with compassion. That word is a Greek word, moved with compassion. It has its root in the innards, in the bowels, In the East, the Greeks and the Hebrews, they thought that the seat of the emotions was in the abdomen area of the body. So their perception here is easy to understand. He's moved with emotion. The Greeks would have understood it um, much more in, I suppose, a negative sense, whether a close friend or a, a family member is hurt or there was some kind of tragedy. That sickening feeling in their abdomen that would allow the Greeks to think that it's, this is the place where violent passions of anger and lust come out. But the Hebrews, however, they saw the stomach, the bowels, the abdomen as this place where the tender affections originate, like kindness and like compassion. It's actually in villages today, you'll still get this kind of speech. You're cutting up my intestines would be the kind of phrase used you know, when you're telling a moving story. So the father sees his son at a distance and before he reaches the edge of the village, he knows what his son is gonna face. So the father's intestines are, they're cut up with compassion. So he runs, it's urgent. It's really not quite possible to capture really the mystery found in this matchless parable, this image of the divine as a father who hitches his garment up and runs shamefully, it would be in that culture, to his son. The son who's done so much to mess everything up. Just imagine that image of the father running, a running, racing, compassionate filled father who loves his son so much that he is taking on shame upon himself, perhaps. He's going out to find his son, to resurrect his son. The one who is dead and lost, who will later hear is found. It's interesting, this is, like a, this is actually, I'm gonna focus on the father this morning, but this is actually like a Trinitarian story because there's, there's notes, there's, there's a ring here of incarnation where the father sends out, goes out. And there's a, a sense of the atonement here, the shame that he's taking upon himself. You know, like um, and Paul says, you know, that in Christ, God reconciles the world to himself. Jesus says that I and the Father are one. There is a Trinitarian love going on here, but this is, we're gonna focus on the Father here because the Father is the one who is in the story, the one who's leaving this place of comfort and of home to humiliate himself, to run to the Son. And so we get to the edge of the village and the villagers will be standing around and they'll be listening in on what's going on and the younger son's expecting to beg the father for his place on the, on, on the household staff. But he doesn't even get to that. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. There's a lot of shame there. But the father says, bring quickly the best 
robe and put it on him. The ring on his hands, a shoe on his feet. Kill the fatted calf, for today we will eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, but he is found. This is an amazing scene. And remember, this is again a parable that Jesus is telling to this group about what you think about when you think about God. Amazing parable. The younger son was planning to beg his father to be a slave, essentially. He'd forgotten who he was and yet bestowed upon him this reminder that he is a son, this celebration, this feast that the whole village would have been invited to. This is truly stunning. What do you think about when you think about God? Is this an image that's in your mind? Interaction between the son and the father here would have been the talk of the town. Every home would have been talking about it that night. The action of the father is this drama of reconciliation that ultimately truly restores the son in the community, back into the family and back in the community to such a degree that the village will not reject or despise. The son will come to celebrate. There's a painting, it's one of my favorite paintings and um, it's gonna come up on the screen hopefully. Oh, it's really dark, but you can get the gist. Does anyone know what this painting is? You're right. Henry Nan's book on this, by the way, is just gonna be great. It's, um, it's The Prodigal Son. Um, I think it's actually called The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. So um, Rembrandt, this is one of his masterpieces, and it is, he was moved, Rembrandt, by this story. And he painted this, and I just love it. Um, I just love it. I'm particularly struck by the image of the father and the son. It's interesting that the son in this image is, is leaning his head into that abdomen area, that area of compassion, um, such grace. Henry Nowen says that spiritual fatherhood has got nothing to do with power or control. It is a fatherhood of compassion. I feel like that's just such a countercultural thing, even in that quote for us, when there's so much talk about power and control and what strength and leadership looks like in our culture today, that spiritual fatherhood is about compassion. Furthermore, in the story, when we get back to the story, the father not only greets the son, but begins to kiss him again and again and again, which would have meant that he just kissed him again and it wasn't it was just a it was just like a, a blessing him with love and kisses that men in that time would do that um it would be natural like it'd be a robust fashion that a man would express deep compassion and so we can with little imagination we can see the image and imagine the fear that the prodigal son returning back home was going to feel walking all those miles into the village with the shame before him, like a gauntlet before him, and he arrives and he's overwhelmed with this demonstration of love. And he, I can only imagine, just falls to his knees like the sun in this painting. A love that was always there, but he never saw it. And now it's visible for the first time and he understands it. Guys, I really believe this is, this is the heart of God for us. That God is a father and we are his children. 
He's a God who, as a father, waits for us. He is the heart of a father. If you're here and you're carrying weight today, shame today, you're far off today, you need to know that. The God that's the Zeus figure, that's like a demonic lie, it's not really what God looks like. If you wanna see what God looks like, you need to look at this parable because this is Jesus revealing the heart of the Father. <clears throat> Jesus came to do the work of the Father and he reveals the heart of the Father. I feel like some of us in this room need to let go of the quote Frozen. <laughs> Dan was talking, Dan and I were having a big deep chat about Frozen earlier. Um, that's what we do before we uh, come into church on Sundays. Let it go, yeah. Um, cut off, let go these images and notions that of God, of monster God, of God that's out to get you, that's after you. And God is a God whose intestines rupture with compassion and he lifts his garment and races after you. If you're lost today, if you wondered why you turned up today, if you're disoriented in your faith today or you've no faith, you're disconnected or you feel lost or dead, I want you to tell you that God's waiting for you. He's looking out for you. And when you rise, when you come to yourself and the spirit causes you to do that and you turn, the father runs to you, races to you with love, compassion and grace. This is our story as sons and daughters of God. This is our story. So what do you think about when you think about God? God is a radical father. When I was thinking about this as well, I also remembered that the story keeps going. Do you remember the other son? The elder son? There's two sons in the story. Let me just read. Now, the older son was in the field, and he came and drew to the house, and he heard the dancing and the music. But his response to the father was, look, look at all these years I have served you. Interesting word, that, served you. And I never disobeyed you once. I was the good brother, and you never threw a party for me. I think some, when this is often taught, I think teachers and preachers often encourage us, the listener, to identify ourselves in the story. Are you the younger brother? Or are you the older brother? And I honestly just think like we're both, like in our journey, at different parts of our journey. Like we, if we have come to really know God, we've come to the end of ourselves and we've we've cried out to God and we've been in that place where we know our brokenness but then there's times where we're we're self-righteous too and we are you know we're like the elder brother too I think we're both different times of our story and it's interesting that the elder brother's response here is I have served you for so many years that's like the language of an employee or a servant or a slave that's not like the language like a son uses that's the language of someone who's working to earn and it seems like he has forgotten his identity he has forgotten both brothers in fact have forgotten that they were sons of this father they both, one wants to come back to the father as a servant. One feels like he's certainly operating with a slave mentality and yet the father loves them both. 
and gives them both what they want. Their inherit, his, he gives the inheritance to the younger son. And he invites them both to the party. And they never saw the love that was always there. It never went anywhere. It's just now visible. So I think the question for us as a community of faith that follow Jesus on Trinity Sunday, on Father's Day, is do we know, like not know cerebrally about the being that created the universe, but the God that has been revealed and reveals himself to us, the God who speaks, the God who acts, the God who has revealed himself as a father, do we know Do we have an intimacy with God as a father? Do we think of ourselves as children of God, sons and daughters of God? Do we know that our father loves us? He is so self-giving and compassionate, racing through the streets, throwing us a feast. He is cut up for us. He... uh, in the image with the younger son, he puts the ring. The ring was a, like a signifier of, of sonship of the family. The robe was the finest robe. It marked, you're now part of the family, and people would have respected that. It was a seal, in a sense. The ring was a seal, sorry, and the, the, the robe was a sign. They even the sh- put the shoes on his feet, because slaves don't wear shoes. Servants don't wear shoes, but sons wear shoes. There's a, there's a hint there of sonship. It's loaded, this parable is radically loaded. The imagery that Jesus uses is stunning and it's stunning for the listeners at that time, but stunning for us too, that God is a father who's got a lavish love for us. And he's lavish love for all of us today as his children and he welcomes us into his family. Michael um, Edward Regan was the adopted son of Ronald Reagan. And uh, he was, Ronald was the 40th president of the United States, um, POTUS. Um, we're not 45, 45 now, are we? 44, 45, I think we're 45. Um, at the funeral service of we, we're not even, what are we, we're in the UK, I don't know why I'm saying we. And the world has a 45th American president at the moment, I think. At the funeral service of his father in June 2004, Michael opened this address, the address with these words. Good evening. I'm Mike Regan. You knew my father as governor and president, but I knew him as dad. Which just sort of sums up the reality that we've been talking about this morning. To be so close to the most powerful man in the world, and, and yet that's just your dad. And, and that's essentially who we are as children of God, that the, the most holy other awesome God that the scriptures have all sorts of language to describe, king of kings, lord of lords, creator, sustainer of the universe, holds all things together and we can know him as father. We can know him as father. It's a brilliant quote that I'd love to read by um, J.I. Packer. It says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, he or she makes. 
and having God as his or her father. If this is not the thought that prompts you and controls, influences your worship and prayers, this whole outlook on life, it means that he or she does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Romans 8 says that you have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, and if heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, that Jesus is our brother. Perhaps some of us are like the younger brother and we have forgotten that and we are far off. Or perhaps some of us are right here, locked in the church mode and we're just sitting like the elder brother and we've forgotten that we are a son or a daughter of God and we're just going through the motions. And God wants to invite you with that compassionate, self-giving, gracious love, a love that causes us to cry, Abba, Father, that brings freedom in our identity. Jesus knew God as Father. He taught us to pray our Father. And so as Christians, we, as those that follow Jesus, as those that look to Jesus as the one who is the face of God in human form, we are invited to know God as Father. I'd love to invite the band up, um, Connor and Megan. I'd love even to invite some of our senior leaders and prayer ministry guys. If you're in the prayer ministry team or our senior leadership team, I'd love to invite you up because I'd love to spend just a few minutes as we finish today responding um, to all we've been sharing this morning because I really sense that God would want to meet with us, to encourage us, to remind us, to fill us afresh with his spirit spirit of daughterhood and sonship, a spirit of adoption into his family. I believe that some of us in this room, if we're living with that slave mentality, servant mentality, that God wants to set you free from that today. He wants to remind you today. He wants to encourage you today. He wants to fill you up today. Psalm 68 says that God is a father to the fatherless and a defender, a defender of the widows is God in his holy place. God sets the lonely in families. Let's stand. Maybe we could close our eyes for just a minute. Maybe we could, if you feel comfortable with this, if you want to put your hands out, um, into your receiving posture. Um, when you invite the Spirit of God to come, 
These guys are, are getting themselves sorted out over here and ready. If you want to go and receive prayer, I would really encourage you to do so. We're going to break bread and... Um, this table is a picture not only of the presence of Christ in our midst, the bread and the wine. We're a Jesus community in Redeemer and Jesus is perfect theology for us because it's here that we encounter Jesus. We encounter Jesus. But this is also, as we do that, as we celebrate Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, this is also a picture of the banquet that the father throws for the son. This is the place at the table that you're invited to as a son or as a daughter. This is a picture of the future feast that God will throw when all things are made new. In the new heavens and the new earth, when there is a banquet, a feast, a party that we are invited to. Let me just read this and we'll sing and I would love to invite you. If you are heavy today, if you're carrying shame, if you're far off, if you are at the end of yourself, if you don't know God as Father, come to the table and in Christ you will experience the love of a Father who has made a place for you. Come to the table. Let me just read this quote whether, from Henry Nowen. Whether I am the younger son or the elder son, God's only desire is to bring me home. Here is the God I want to believe in, a father who from the beginning of creation has stretched his arms out in merciful blessing, never forcing himself on anyone, but always waiting, never letting his arms drop down in despair, but always hoping that his children will return so that he can speak words of love to them and let his tired arms rest on their shoulders. His only desire is to bless. Father, we thank you for your love today. And I pray now as we worship and as we celebrate Jesus, your, your son, the true brother who went outside the gate on our behalf, as we do that, that we would encounter this revelation of the love of God as Father, I pray that Spirit of God, you would come. Rest on us in this place. Fill us afresh with this spirit of adoption that we are not outsiders or strangers or slaves, but we are welcomed into the family of God as sons and daughters. That we would cry out, Abba, Father, that there would be freedom in this place. Spirit, we ask you to open our eyes spiritually that we may see the love of the Father for us, racing for us, pursuing us, coming after us today. In Jesus' name.